Well, I appreciate Pastor Andrew uh, making sure that we understand with uh, what we sing and uh, explaining to us about uh, the panoply of God. Um, I will say this about uh, what we sang. Panoply is actually a Greek word. So how do you like that? You sang Greek tonight. Right? Sometimes we sing Latin, right? Gloria and Excelsis Deo. Uh, tonight it was Greek. Panoply is, uh, is a word used in Ephesians chapter 6 and 11, uh, and it's translated whole. So when you read, put on the whole armor of God, uh, it's the panoplia, the, the entirety of it. And so uh, that's certainly what Wesley was thinking when he wrote that hymn. And so there you have it. Now you are all well informed and you can say, uh, we sing Greek in church. We must be very bright people. All right? Well, tonight I would like to uh, get back to a series that uh, we began last year, uh, before the new year. Uh, a series, basically a, a biblical, what we might call anthropology, okay? And I don't apologize for that, okay? I know we have young people in here, and uh, there are oftentimes, believe it or not, when I'm preparing a Sunday night message, and I'm thinking of the vast array of ages in my audience, and I'm thinking, you know, we have young kids, and this is just going to go right over their head. And uh, let me just uh, speak a word to our parents about that. Uh, sometimes we tend to think that uh, we need to make sure that we get our children in environments where it really caters to them and helps them to understand things. And while that is true, we want to be sensitive to that. Um, I know in our experience with uh, my own children, uh, some of the greatest benefit to them was actually to come to a place like this and sit and listen to God's Word, even if it wasn't directly aimed or even grasped by them. And what they did grasp was this. It's important to sit and listen to God's Word. And sometimes that's the greatest lesson a young person can take out of continually, constantly being in God's house with God's people. They may not get all of this, but what they will get is mom and dad think it's important enough that we sit and listen and get whatever we can at our level from God's word. So let me encourage you that. That's free for parents tonight, okay? Um, but something I think worthy mentioning. So we've been in this series on uh, humanity, creation to restoration, kind of a biblical anthropology. What does the Bible teach us about ourselves, uh, who we are, what happened to us, uh, how God is uh, restoring that, kind of a renovation project like I have here for our theme in the background. And so just a quick review for you. In the first couple of lessons, we just answered this question, who who are you? Who am I? How does the Bible describe us? Well, we are a direct creation of God. We are created in God's image. That was key to understand. What does that mean, I'm created in God's image? And then in our second lesson, we really looked at, though that is the case, we are fallen creatures. We don't image God perfectly. And so uh, what happened? We, we looked specifically at the fall of man and the essence of that. If you had to boil it down, this is really what happened at the fall of man. It wasn't simply eating or taking a bite of a piece of fruit. There was something much more into that. You're going to have to excuse me tonight, too. I'm 
I've got to have this throat lozenge or I probably won't make it through the, the sermon tonight. So if you hear something, uh, Amy told me, she said, you got to quit rattling that thing on your teeth. And <clears throat> I try not to, but uh, sometimes it just happens, okay? So you'll have to bear with me. Uh, the essence of the fall of man is this. Mankind fell believing the lie that we are better off living independent of God. Uh, we put it in these terms, where, where we essentially thought, I don't want to image God, I want to be God. And that was the lie that Adam believed and acted upon, and that's what plunged our race into its current situation. So mankind fell by believing this lie, but, but that brought up another question to us. Well, if we are all fallen and don't want to image God but want to be God, how do you explain uh, the goodness of bad people? I mean, you have people that don't profess to be followers of Christ, unbelievers, and yet they're kind and they're generous and they're helpful. And how do you explain that? Are these really bad people? Does, does the uh, image of God is it still a part of them? How do we explain that? And so we took some time with that particular question and noted that the image of God is defaced in human beings, but it's not erased. And so when you have somebody who's an unbeliever, but they're kind and they're generous and they're helpful, they are imaging God. The problem is, as an unbeliever, they wouldn't draw that conclusion. They would say, well, I'm just a naturally kind person. Well, this is just kind of my nature. And the Bible says, no, it's not. The only reason that they're kind at all is because of God's general grace. And so we looked at that question and tried to work through that. And then last time we were together, which was several weeks ago actually, we asked this question, so is there any hope for fallen image bearers? Is there really any hope for people who've lost this image? And we noted that the answer to that that the Bible gives is something called regeneration. It's not reformation. It's not conformity to an external standard that we all just need to rise to this occasion. God actually restores the image by doing something internally in our heart. It's a transformation of heart that works itself out into a transformed life. And so that is God's answer to the problem of man being made in his image but fallen, and that image is restored through regeneration. Well, tonight I want to drill down on this thought a little bit further. Can we, can we do any better than just state regeneration? What, what specifically does God do to restore his image in us? Does he describe a process? Does he, does he talk at all about what the essence of that looks like? And so I want to look at a particular passage tonight that I'm certain is familiar to you. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. a verse for you that is familiar, but it's a, one of those verses that we maybe memorize and read. The, the trouble is, is we kind of pluck it from its context, and we read it, and we might get the gist of it, but I don't think we get the full impact of it. 
So 2 Corinthians 3.18, if we're talking about restoring the image of God in us, how is the image of God in man restored? This verse certainly uh, addresses that issue. If you look at 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now you can read that verse and you can gather from that that certainly it's talking about change into an image. It's talking about by degrees of glory. And we oftentimes recite this verse in the context of sanctification and it certainly is that. But what I want to do is really lay out the context of this verse for us tonight and spend some time doing that because I think it will transform the way you think about this verse. And ultimately it will transform maybe the way you think about your own sanctification. So I want us to first of all look at the context of 2 Corinthians 3. And to do that we have to go all the way up to verse 1 in the passage. Now here's what's going on in 2 Corinthians. Intruders have come into Corinth and really intruded in the church at Corinth after Paul had established the church and planted the church. And they had come in teaching something entirely different than what Paul had taught. It's commonly believed, and I would tend to agree, that the teaching that was going on was the teaching of some people called the Judaizers. And they would say things like this, well, it's great to follow Jesus, he is the Christ, and be a Christian, but really, to be truly sanctified, you need to also do what the old covenant commanded. In other words, you need to follow circumcision, you need to follow the dietary laws and observe the days, because those things as well work toward your sanctification process, at least, if not your salvation in general. And so you have these intruders that came in after Paul, and not only that, they had with them letters of recommendation that said, we are authorized to speak in your churches and present this message. Here are our letters of recommendation, probably from some well-known people in Jerusalem. And so they're presenting these letters. Here are our credentials. Therefore, listen to what we say, and they're kind of taking a sideways glance at Paul and saying, who's this guy? He's rogue. We're part of the system. Listen to us. And that's what he's addressing. Look at verse 1. Paul writes to them and says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, he's saying, do we have to come and, and remind you of who we are? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You see he's making reference to that. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Here's what Paul is saying. 
He's saying you have these people coming with letters of recommendation, and what they are doing is they are trying to teach you to go back to those letters written in stone. What were those? Think of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law. It says you have people that are bringing these letters of recommendation. They're saying they are experts in this, and they're trying to take you back to the letters written in stone. And Paul says, don't you understand? I'm talking to you about something written on your heart. What's the contrast he's making? Letters written on stone, recommendation letters from other people, And he's saying, but in turn, you Corinthians are our letter, and there was something written on your heart. Paul is essentially saying this, Corinthians, look at your own lives. It is the evidence that what we are preaching to you actually affects change in your life, not that which was written on stone. But why does he put it in this language? This language of something written on tablets of stone versus something written on the tablet of the human heart. Can you think of anything in your Bible that you've ever read that makes that kind of contrast? Something written on stone versus something written on the heart. Well, let me show you. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Because it was in that old covenant time that God mentioned that there would be a new kind of covenant that would be enacted by him. And what I want to do now is, I promise you I'm not digressing, but we need to spend a little bit of time tonight talking about this passage in Jeremiah 31 and what it means in our current New Testament context, all right? Look at Jeremiah 31 and notice verse 31 God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A what? A new covenant. Have you ever heard of that? The new covenant. If you have, this is the only place in your Old Testament where this language is used. New covenant. Fresh covenant. It would be new as opposed to what? What's the other kind of covenant? An old covenant, right? And he's going to mention that in just a minute. So let's, let's read about this new covenant. God says, I will in the future, Jeremiah, make a new covenant. It will be with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. What covenant was that? That was that Old Covenant. It included the Mosaic Law and all of those ceremonial things and all of those civil things. And and God says, "I, I, I took this nation out of Egypt. I made this covenant with them. We read of that in Exodus. And they couldn't keep it. They broke their part. And so God says this, verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? Within them, and I will write it where? On their hearts. Remember what we read in 2 Corinthians 3? 
What was Paul saying? These people have letters of recommendation written on tablets of stone. You are our letter of recommendation, as it were, written where? On your heart. And Paul is pulling on this Old Testament imagery of new covenant promise that God had given in Jeremiah. Now, I want to answer some questions tonight just about this new covenant because it will help us back in 2 Corinthians 3. I don't want you to raise your hand tonight, but think of this question. Are you a member of the new covenant? Are you a part of the new covenant? That's a big question. In fact, that question could be answered differently by people of differing denominational backgrounds. However, I think the majority of Christendom and even conservative Christendom will agree with what I'll express with you tonight. Well, let's just ask this question. God says in Jeremiah 31, I will make this new kind of covenant. When did he do that? Has he done that? Or is it something still to be done in our future? Well, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the believers at Corinth... And what he is doing is he's giving them instruction regarding their observance of the Lord's table together. And he says, here's how you should observe this. And just notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 11. He actually records the words of the Lord Jesus himself. Look at verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 25. Paul records this about Jesus the night of his Betrayal. He says, in the same way also he, that is Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. So based on that, we read that same kind of language in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. The author of Hebrews uses it in Hebrews chapter 9. Has the new covenant in some sense been inaugurated already in our time? When did Jesus inaugurate this new covenant? It was at that last supper with his disciples and he said, here is a cup. And we, I often mention these words when we observe the Lord's table together. And he says, this cup is the new covenant. It represents this new covenant. It's being inaugurated. It was inaugurated with those men that night. So the first thing we would understand about the new covenant is that Jesus' death inaugurates this new covenant by providing propitiation for sin. That's what he means with the new covenant of my blood. It will be offered for you. It will provide the satisfaction for sin. Here's the second thing we should understand about the new covenant today. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. Now again, we don't know the author of Hebrews, but we do know the audience. Who's the audience? It's not that hard. Who's the audience? Jewish people, Hebrews. 
And so don't you think that they of all people would have questions about this? What is this new covenant that God spoke of in Jeremiah? Is it today? How does all this play out? And look at Hebrews chapter 8, and notice with me verse 6. We'll just read um, right through here. Hebrews 8 verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. We just jumped right into a context, but here's what he's saying. There is this old covenant, but he said Christ mediates a better covenant. Who was the mediator of the first covenant? Moses, as he went up on the mountain to meet with God, and he brought that back down to the people and confirmed the covenant with them. And now it says Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. What is this covenant? What does it look like? Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, what covenant is that? The Mosaic covenant. If that had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Does that sound familiar? Where's he quoting from? Jeremiah 31, that new covenant passage that we read earlier. And so go all the way down in verse 13, because he quotes that passage and he concludes this way. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer of Hebrews has this to say. This new covenant provided something different that the Mosaic covenant didn't. It provided an intimacy with God through regeneration and forgiveness of sin And those things are in force today, making the old covenant obsolete. This is why when you came to worship this morning, you didn't come toting your sheep. Right? To be able to offer that sacrifice as was commanded under the old covenant as somebody who was a part of the family of God. So, Is the new covenant enacted and inaugurated today? I would say yes. It's obvious that's what Jesus was talking about the night of his betrayal. It's obvious the writer of Hebrews is actually making this distinction that Jesus has now come and mediated a new covenant. It's a better covenant. And thirdly, what we learn about this new covenant, we're going to learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because that's the third passage that really addresses this in the New Testament. And from that, we're going to learn this, that these spiritual dimensions of the new covenant are actually synonymous with the gospel that Paul preached. What are these spiritual dimensions of the new covenant? It provides propitiation for sin. It provides an intimacy with God that all would know him. It provides new life, something written on the heart in regeneration. It makes the old obsolete. All of those things are enacted now in this new covenant era today. 
But before we move on, there's one thing I need to address because some of you are thinking about this. Does that mean that the church today has now become Old Testament Israel and is now receiving these new covenant promises? Again, Bible-believing people disagree on this. However, I think you've got to take into consideration one other New Testament passage that speaks along these terms. We've just seen three New Testament passages, we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians 3 in a minute, that actually show us the new covenant in some way is inaugurated right now. You and I are new covenant believers. We're not old covenant believers for certain. But does that mean all the promises of the new covenant are being fulfilled now, even those literal, physical promises? Let me show you one other passage, and then we'll get back into 2 Corinthians. Look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and look at verse 25. Here Paul writes, again, right, jumping into a context, he's writing about, um, what he's been writing about since chapter 9 is this, God has made promises to Israel. Not all of those promises has been fulfilled, have been fulfilled. Will God ever keep his promises? And ultimately, underlying that question is, can you trust God? Can you trust him to keep his promises? He made promises to these old covenant people and they haven't fulfilled some of those promises. So can we trust him? And here's how he wraps this up. Look at verse 25 of Romans 11. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon who? Israel. Now how are we to read that? A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Who is the Israel here? I would suggest to you this is none other than ethnic national Israel. It's Israelites as opposed to Gentiles. It's talking about them as an ethnic nation. A partial hardening has come upon Jewish people until the fullness of who has come in? The fullness of who? Gentiles, who's that? Okay, so what he's saying is, here's what's going on now. The gospel, the new covenant even gospel has gone out, not just to Jews, but to Gentile people. And by and large, even in Paul's day, he's saying, by and large, it's the Gentile people that are receiving this. And it's the people of Israel that were given this new covenant promise that should have received it, but they're hardened in heart. Verse 26. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, ethnic national Israel, seem to be enemies for your sake, but as regard election, they are beloved of God for the sake of who? their forefathers, the one to whom God made all of those promises, verse 29, 
For the gifts and callings of God are what? Irrevocable. Here's what Paul says. He made promises to ethnic national Israel. He's going to keep those promises. What he's saying is this. The new covenant is in effect today spiritually as Gentile people. We're like grafted in and we benefit from these new covenant promises in a spiritual way. But there is coming a day when a deliverer will come from Zion. And when Jesus returns, he will fulfill his new covenant promise in literal physical ways to ethnic national Israel. That was free. Okay? What I want to do now is go back to 2 Corinthians 3. We kind of take this circuitous route to understand what the Bible teaches us in our New Testament about this new covenant. Because when you come to 2 Corinthians 3, this now is the third passage, like the one on your screen there, that talks about the spiritual benefits of this new covenant. In fact, this language is used. Look at 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. Paul says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a what? Of a what? 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Paul is a minister of what? A new covenant. This new covenant thing. And he's going to contrast that down in verse 14 when he talks about the old covenant. Okay, so what is he saying about this new covenant versus old covenant? Well, remember how we launched from this passage? Look at verse 3 at the end with the spirit of, of, uh, rather, verse 3. Um, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone but on tablets of the human heart so he's making this contrast between the new and the old covenant and what he's saying in verse 6 is this Paul and his associates are ministers of this new thing the new covenant that provides intimacy with God through regeneration forgiveness of sins And then look at verse 7. He starts comparing and contrasting these two covenants. Look at verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory. What is that? New covenant or old covenant? Old covenant. He's saying you had this old covenant, but it came with a kind of glory. Do you remember how God initiated that covenant with them? What was the scene? Maybe you should think of Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, right? What was the scene? It was this cloud on top of Sinai. It was this thunder and rumbling. And it was when Moses went up to meet with God to get those tablets of stone Paul's going to say, when he came down, what was different about Moses? His face shone because he was in the presence of God. There was a glory to this. And he says, this old covenant, let's not quickly pass it aside. There was a glory to that, an intended glory of God in that. So keep reading in verse 7. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, although it was being brought to an end. Now verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more what? More what? 
glory. Here's what he's saying. Just from what we've looked at tonight in the survey of the New Testament, if you had to vote, which is better, the Old Covenant or the New Covenant? The New Covenant. And if that Old Covenant came with a sense of glory about it, what would you expect the glory to be of the New Covenant? Greater glory. So keep reading. Look at verse 9. For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. What's that? Old covenant. Contrast that, middle of the verse. The ministry of righteous must far exceed it in what? In glory. There's a greater kind of glory. Verse 10, he just elaborates on that. He says, indeed, this really is the case. What once had glory, that old covenant has come now to have no glory at all because of this glory that surpasses it, this new covenant glory. And here's the final contrast, verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, what's that? The old covenant. Much more will what is permanent have what? glory. What he's saying is you had this old covenant and it was bound to be obsolete because the people couldn't keep it and it was fading in glory. But what about this new covenant? What kind of glory will it have? And what he's saying is there's a permanence to it. We're not looking for a new new covenant. We're in the new covenant. And it has a greater kind of glory. So look at verse 12. Paul says, since we have such a hope. What hope? What hope does Paul have? It's this hope he just mentioned at the end of verse 11. A permanent kind of glory. Since we are confident in this, that the new covenant is so much better and possesses this permanent kind of glory, we are very bold to proclaim this. And then he says, verse 13, not like the other mediator, Moses, who did what? He put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, that old covenant. He says, we're not like Moses when he did that. Now, what's he talking about? Moses and this veil thing. Well, let's go there in our Bibles and just catch up ourselves, catch ourselves up rather on a little Old Testament history, all right? Look at Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 34, this is after Moses had been up on the mountain once. You remember he came down from the mountain the first time and the people were involved in debauched idolatry. And there was that golden calf incident. Now Moses, after having dealt with that, goes back up on the mountain again. And God again renews this old covenant. Exodus 34, verse 10, God says, Behold, I am making a covenant. And he's, he's renewing it. Even though they have sinned, he's going to be gracious. And he's going to enter into this covenant. But when Moses went up the second time onto the mountain and met with God, and he got the law of God, and he came down from the mountain, this is what happened. Look at verse 29 of Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, 
because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were what? What are they? Afraid. Why are they afraid? What have they just done? Before the ink was even dried on the first set of covenant documents, they had involved themselves in debauched idolatry. And now Moses, again, obviously having met with God, and there's the reflection of the glory of God as he gave again that good and righteous law. And he comes down to those people, and they see the reflection in Moses' face, and they understand the glory of God in that. And they're terrified that God's going to wipe them out, because that's exactly what they deserve. There's this condemnation they feel because of the glory of God. These people fear not only God on the mountain, but even the reflection of his glory in the face of Moses. And so what does Moses do? He covers his face. He he veils the glory, as it were. And so now go back to 2 Corinthians 3. Because this is now Paul's New Testament exegesis of Exodus 34. And here's what he says was going on. He says, verse 12, we have a hope of this new covenant and we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He says, Moses had to veil that glory because those people were terrified. They were terrified of what God might do to them. Why? Look at verse 14. Because their minds were hardened. He says, those people didn't have a new heart. They had a hardened heart. And therefore, when they were confronted with even the reflection of the glory of God in the face of Moses, even that glory of the old covenant, they were terrified. And they said, cover your face. And Paul says, we're not like that because we have better things to know about you. There's a difference about you under the new covenant. And we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 14, he says, their minds were hardened. And he says, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ is the veil of judgment lifted that we might be able to look plainly into the face of God's glory and not feel condemned. He says, verse 15, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil still lies over their hearts. 
But when one turns to the Lord, what happens to the veil? It's removed. No longer shuddering in fear at this glory of God. But now actually invited into the presence of God to experience that. That's why he says, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom to come into God's presence and not fear. And so now, our verse Right? All that time to talk about the context of 2 Corinthians 3 to get to this. Now, read this verse with me. Verse 18, Paul says, And we all with unveiled face. Interestingly, what does he say? Who is he talking about? We all. Paul is saying in this new covenant context, there's no distinction between me and the people. Who got to go on the mountain of Sinai and receive the law of God? Moses. In fact, God told everybody else, stay away. Paul says, we're in the new covenant, brethren. We all get to go to God. We all, without fear, unveiled faces, Why? Because in the new covenant, through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, there's no longer the fear. Forgiveness has happened in Christ. And our hearts are now made soft before God. And there's no hardness of heart that bars the way to his presence. And so we all get to come with unveiled face. And what do we do? Verse 18. We all with unveiled face beholding what? Beholding what? Glory. We get to look at the glory. Now just a, just a comment about translation here. Some of you are holding a translation in your laps, a good conservative translation that would include a few words. And I'll try to explain this for you. For instance, the Christian Standard Bible says that we all with unveiled face are looking in a mirror at the glory. And some translations include this idea of a mirror because the word that's translated looking or beholding, it can mean either seeing and perceiving or it can mean reflecting. And some translations take it different ways. The ESV uh, removes this idea of mirror, which I don't think is helpful. I think they should have kept that in because I do think the idea of reflection is there. But it's like we come into the presence of God and it's not like we are directly seeing God because nobody can and live. It is still a mediated glory of God like in a mirror, but we are seeing the image. We are seeing his glory, but it's mediated to us in some way, like through a mirror. It's not direct. Well, the question is, it says that we're beholding glory of the Lord What is the mirror? 
And what actually are you seeing? What is this glory of the Lord? Well, look at John chapter 1. John writes this way, John chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, and the word, speaking of Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? His glory. We have seen the glory of Jesus Christ, and it is glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, when Jesus came to earth, it was God in flesh, but we saw God's glory in that flesh. We saw the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ. This is that glory. It's not a a bright, radiant kind of thing, although on one occasion you may recall that Jesus' glory actually shone through his humanity. But but, But John here is not specifically thinking in terms of this kind of bright light. He's saying, when you look at Jesus, you see God's glory. It's mediated like in a mirror, but that is God's glory. In fact, Paul will agree with this. Go back to 2 Corinthians 3. And look down at verse, uh, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 6. Paul will write later on in the same train of thought, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of who? The glory of God. And where do we see that? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And so when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and he says, we behold in a glass the glory of the Lord, it's like we're looking into the face of Christ and we're seeing the glory of God And that glory is changing us like it did Moses. It can be seen in us. And we no longer have to have the veil because of our own hardness of heart. It's through the new covenant regeneration promise that gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone so that we can come and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's a glory that increases Because when you look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 again, it says, we behold the glory of the Lord, and as we do, we're being what? Transformed into that same image. When we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, we're being changed to be like it, because it's a principle that you become like what you worship. And when you see the beauty of Christ in the face of Christ, and you're spending time with Christ, you become like Christ, and you're being changed into his image and that kind of glory. And notice he says finally that this happens progressively. It's from one degree of glory to another. It happens incrementally. One stage of glory looking more, next stage of glory, looking more, next stage of glory. 
And ultimately, this happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, what Paul is addressing here is that believers in a new covenant context experience not cosmetic change externally, but experience heart change that enable us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and become like Him. Changed into His image. And it happens progressively from one degree of glory to another. Bottom line, let me put it to you this way. Paul is arguing from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you have it better than Moses. Do you believe that? Oh, you're like, are you kidding me? I would have loved to have been on that mountain. I mean, experience that? Are you kidding me? Paul says, don't fool yourself. You have it better than Moses. Because God in his grace has changed your heart. And you're able to look and see the glory of God in Christ in its fullness expression. And you're being changed. And it's not like that glory that faded from Moses' face eventually, right? It's a glory that's increasing. It transforms. It becomes brighter and brighter, and it's permanent until one day, beloved, you stand before God face to face, and you are just like Jesus Christ. And it'll be glory. And that will never change. This is what God is doing to restore the image This is his plan. Now, what is your part? Really, it boils down to this. How do I see Christ's glory? Where do I see it? What kind of time do I spend with him? Came across this quote from a man who you're probably familiar with, a man by the name of Jerry Bridges. Bridges was a prolific writer, godly man. He wrote a little book called The Practice of Godliness, and he commented on this very thing. Jerry's with the Lord now, but here's what he said. He said, Beholding the Lord's glory in his word is more than just observing his humanity in the Gospels. Here's what he says. When you talk about beholding the glory of the Lord, it's not just I read the facts about Jesus in the Gospels. He says, it is observing his character, his attributes, and his will in every page of Scripture. And as we observe him, as we maintain this relationship with him through his word, we are transformed more and more into his likeness. We are enabled by the Holy Spirit to progressively manifest the graces of godly character. So it is this relationship with Christ, expressed by beholding him in his word and depending upon him in prayer, that enables us to draw from him the power essential for a godly life. 
You see, he's, he's even having a hard time describing this, but he's saying it's like when you're reading the Bible, I'm not reading black ink on white paper to stuff information into my head. I'm actually beholding something. I'm, I'm seeing Christ and who he is. This is the glory of God. And somehow I'm having relationship with him. And this relationship, maybe even at times unknown to me, is changing me. Like when Moses came off the mountain and he didn't know his face was glowing, but everybody around him said, what's going on with you? And he said, this is how God does this. And so what is our part in it? Our part is simply this, beloved, how much time do you spend looking in the mirror? You know, on Wednesday night, we have these Bible verses. And once a month, we're trying to memorize a Bible verse. Once a month, you have 30 days to memorize three or four sentences. Why do we do that? Because it's church things. That's what we do. It's some attempt to help you gaze at Christ's glory. Do you memorize verses? Do you carry them on cards with you that you can think about them? Not only memorize them, but apply them to your life. What does this say about how I ought to live? You're you're beholding the glory of Christ. Why? So you'll be changed to be like him? When when you come uh, to, to assemble with God's people and we open this book together and we sit under the preaching of his word, is, is the thought in your mind, how soon can this be over? Man, I hope there's some good stories tonight that keep me engaged. Or can you take 45, 50 minutes on a Sunday night and say, let me just think about the glory of Christ? Let me just think about what God is saying to me through this and how he wants to change me through this. On a day-to-day basis, do you, do you pick up your Bible and, and read it, not just to check mark, I've done it, and now I'm, I'm going through my Bible this year, but, but I'm trying to spend time gazing at Christ so that people see him on my face. This is our privilege. Moses would have loved that. Do you take advantage? You say, Matt, you're all exercised about this. You're right. Because here's what I know. And I know this by 20 plus years of pastoral experience that I have met with people and people have come to me with grave issues and grave trouble in their life and I always begin in the same place. Let's talk about your own personal relationship with the Lord and how you have been gazing or not at his glory. And I don't put it in those terms but I put it to you tonight because that's what we're talking about. And here's what I know. If people tell me I'm not interested in that. 
or it just really doesn't do anything for me. I read the Bible, it's nothing. I can't read, I'm not a good reader. What I know is they'll never change. Because I can't do it. I can't sprinkle pixie dust and say, be different. Change happens through beholding the glory of God in his word. And when I can get people into that and say, here's a little assignment. Why don't you study the Bible in this and do this? And when they come back and people do it, you know what I see? Change. It may not be to their satisfaction because they want seismic change because they're in such trouble and they want... <laughs> and I have to remind them, God says, one degree of glory to the next. Let's capitalize on little change that God is doing in you. Because that's how God restores his image in us. But you've got to be willing to look in the mirror. Now, if you had to measure your own reflectiveness, how well do you image God? And if you would have to agree in your own heart I don't image God well in my home, in my community, in my workplace. In fact, people might, might wonder if I even know God by the way I behave sometimes. But I would say you need to take very, very careful assessment of how much time are you exposing yourself to the glory of God. Because there is no reflection of that without being in his word. Let's pray together.